Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. In September of 1993, a small group of scholars assembled around the boardroom table at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. They included philosophers, psychologists, historians, and anthropologists. And they were there to discuss what their host, psychologist David Olson, called modes of thought, or why people think the way they do, and how these ways differ. David Cayley was at this workshop, and he's assembled this four-hour ideas series from his conversations with the participants. Tonight, in the concluding programme, he looks at two aspects of science as a mode of thought. First, at how science differs from common sense understanding, and second, at how it alters common sense. You'll hear from Scott Atron, who studied the relationship between folk systems of biological classification and the formal science of biology. And you'll hear from Ian Hacking of the University of Toronto, who's looked at the way in which the idea of normal, first defined within medicine and statistics, now profoundly affects our everyday understanding. Part four of Modes of Thought by David Cayley. Among the effects of the visionary English poet and painter William Blake was a copy of the Discourses of Sir Joshua Reynolds, a portrait painter and a great figure in the English art world during Blake's youth. In the margins, Blake had scrawled, Reynolds believes that man learns all that he knows. I say, on the contrary, that man brings all that he has or can have into the world with him. Man is born a garden, ready planted and sown. This world is too poor to produce one seed. Blake's difference with Reynolds was as old as philosophy itself, and as current as today's newspaper, where you will likely find heredity opposed to environment or nature to nurture. In our time, the opposing views have been perhaps most famously represented by the American linguist Noam Chomsky and the late Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget. Chomsky has argued that much of the human capacity for language is innate. Piaget believed that languages constituted a constructed form of knowledge. Chomsky has suggested that different cognitive abilities belong to inherently different mental domains. Piaget felt that all domains are structured according to the same general operating principles. Scott Atron was a graduate student in anthropology in the early 1970s when these two views dominated thinking about thinking, and he wanted to know which was right. At the time, he was working for the late Margaret Mead at the Museum of Natural History, and with her blessing, he arranged for Chomsky and Piaget to discuss these questions in person at a conference he organized in France in 1975. Atron concluded that Chomsky had the better of the argument, and that just as the body was comprised of a variety of organs, so the mind was furnished with distinctive cognitive faculties, each with its own innate principles of organization. But this left Atron with the problem that Piaget raised. What kind of thinking, then, is science? Isn't science a single mode of thought that operates on the same principles across all domains of knowledge? Atron decided to take up this problem by studying the relationship between science and folk knowledge in a specific domain, the classification of living things. 
He published the results in 1990 in a book called Cognitive Foundations of Natural History. It argues that the science of biology is founded on a universal innate tendency to classify living kinds in certain ways. In all cultures, Scott Atron says, people assign living things in their environment to species like spaniel, oak, robin, or daisy, and then to higher-level family groupings like dog, tree, bird, or flower. And they recognize these groupings virtually from infancy, despite the considerable superficial differences between chihuahuas and St. Bernard's or sunflowers and sweet peas. The morphological variation in dogs or frogs or caterpillars uh, is enormous, more than, say, tables. But we bring to bear on our recognition of these groups much deeper cognitive assumptions. In the case of living kinds, and only in living kinds, really, do we bring to bear the notion of an underlying essence, which unites, say, a tadpole and a frog, which look real different, and which is responsible, or presumed to be responsible, for the thing's growth, the inheritance of its important characteristics, its structure, and its purpose. If you show a kid a rock, you know, with a protruding uh, sharp point, he's not going to ask, or she's not going to ask, what is that for? But if you show a kid something that she recognizes as a living kind, say with a, with a claw or something like that, she will immediately ask, you know, what is, what's it for? What's its purpose? Uh, and spontaneously and in experimental situations. And when you ask them what characterizes this thing and you show them insides which they've never seen, just fake insides, drawings, if the child sees even just visual patterns which are heterogeneous, squares and circles and lines and everything mishmashed, they will much more likely say that that belongs to the living kind's insides than if they saw something homogeneous. So they have expectations of things they've never seen which govern their ideas about what these things are. Also the fact that living kinds grow and there are irreversible patterns of growth, canonical patterns of growth which are directed from the inside, intrinsically, from this essence which is unknown, while the functions and the development or the construction of artifacts are directed ultimately from some external source. So there's lots of things maybe not any one of which define what makes a living kind a living kind, but this notion of underlying essence brings them all together spontaneously, again, right off the bat, and permits this, the construction of morphotypes, of, of types, that enter into taxonomic categories. This, in turn, allows you to make inductions. For instance, given the fact that you see a three-legged tiger, you assume that it's by nature quadrupedal, has four legs, and that everything to do with four-legged creatures also has to do with this three-legged tiger. Now, if you see a three-legged table, even though most tables are four-legged, you won't make that induction. It's a meaningless induction. So there are no inductions to be made from artifact categories in that sense. Well, now we have something which will drive interesting inductions, that is, drive us to look for things we have never seen before and to make connections among properties we might not ever have put together before. And we can't help but do it. 
Now, what happens when they're organized taxonomically, that's hierarchically? Well, you create one of the most powerful inductive schemas, inferential schemas, available to human beings. Let me just give an example. Take the bacteria E. coli, okay, and take a rabbit. And some scientist says, oh, lo and behold, I have found the property X in E. coli and rabbit. Well, he's halfway to the Nobel Prize. Why? Because all he has to do in applying for his grant is say, well, I found them. Now, everybody who's reading the grant proposal, and even any, anybody in the street will say, well, if you found it in two such disparate things, you're going to find it in the sort of lowest ranked category that contains these two disparate things, in this case, all animals or all living kinds. Again, that's an induction you can't perform in any other domain of the world. And it allows us to make incredible inferential leaps. And we do it all the time. We do it all the time. I mean, someone says, well, I found this thing in a, in a, in a turkey. And someone says, well, I also found this thing in, a, in a, a penguin. Then we can assume that it's found in all things, which include the turkey and penguin, in this case, birds. So again, the hierarchy. The hierarchical schema, which is spontaneously available to humans, allows for these incredible inductions. Now, when we're trying to explain where and why these things exist, we might try to come up with some kind of evolutionary story. How does it come into being? And a plausible explanation is that it's adaptive for humans. Uh, look at the power it gives us in interpreting the living world, which surely was important in our own natural selection and survival. And so this plausible speculation leads to the idea that these just might be innate modules. I mean, they are spontaneous. They're available in all cultures, almost at all ages. I mean, some maturation processes in early infancy might uh, have to kick in first. And they're enormously uh, successful at guiding our negotiations with the real world. So it's plausible to suppose that they might be innately determined. Scott Atron attributes common features in the classification of living things to what he calls innate modules, preformed cognitive domains, each organized according to its own principles. Evolution, he reasons, typically proceeds in incremental steps. So isn't it likely to have produced in us a whole series of separate mental adaptations rather than just a vast, undifferentiated thinking capacity. He also finds evidence for his opinion that the mind is modular in studies of child development, which show, he says, that children deploy very different cognitive styles in different domains. Kids at pretty young ages, I mean, once their, their neurons are set, you know, like two years old, do produce very encapsulated inferential schema for dealing with the world. They do seem to have a naive physics, a naive biology, a naive psychology. The causality in each of these domains seem to be treated very differently. We look at the teleological causality in the domain of living kinds, uh, what we expect things to produce and what they are for, to have a sort of design at the end before something be causally designed for the sake of something else. We don't in physics. We just have simple push-pull contingent causality, and infants expect all and only that kind of causality for physical will. For humans, we expect that intentions, which we can't see, will govern our actions. 
and we have beliefs about what they believe and what they desire, and that these things can affect actions, our own and others, beliefs in other minds. And the way these beliefs affect actions is not at all intuitively the way we believe impinging objects affect the movement of other impinging inert objects or the way that living kinds grow and develop. These differences between cognitive domains are built into the foundations of science. Physics begins on the basis of our common sense assumptions about the behavior of physical objects. Biology bases itself on the hierarchies in which we naturally arrange living things. Only much later in their development do these sciences transcend these common sense assumptions. Scott Atron has traced how this happens in the case of biology. The story begins, from a Western point of view, with Aristotle, who first attempted an exact and systematic inventory of the species of which he was aware. Aristotle believed that the world was made up of no more than 500 or 600 kinds of living things, as opposed to the millions of species science now recognizes. But his writings carried such authority in medieval Europe that systematic classification of European species didn't get underway until the Renaissance. Everybody used the, the old authors as almost sacred texts. And instead of going out and seeing whether in Germany you had some particular type of uh, vegetable, they would just assume that the Mediterranean type was there. So the result was that you'd get you know, scholastic treatises on plants and animals which had no relevance whatsoever to the plants and animals, say, of Northern Europe. And it took some time, 15th century, the invention of the movable print and the development of art and the art of woodcut to be able to once again go back to a description of nature. I mean, it's almost paradoxical that it took the development sort of black and white ways of representing the sensual nature, tearing things out by the roots from nature and representing them in black and white describable forms that allowed for the Renaissance thinkers to rediscover the principles of exact description. And now they do essentially what the folk scientists were doing before, but now they had a comparative group, namely the, the Mediterranean types that had been described a thousand years earlier, and they started doing comparative studies and using a single language, in this case Latin or Latinized Greek, so they could communicate across transnational boundaries so that the inventory of basic kinds started growing and growing and growing and growing. This growth continued for several centuries. Europe's expansion into Africa and Asia and the new worlds of the Western Hemisphere constantly added new kinds to the inventory of known species. The development of geology led to the discovery of fossil species. For a time, all these new creatures could be contained within the hierarchy of family, genus, and species, which was basically an elaboration of folk systems of classification. But eventually, the container burst. Visual patterning of relationships, which what the species, the genus, and the family were based on, wasn't sufficient to get to the real relations underlying groups of organisms. People were discovering that no matter how whales might look like fish, they weren't fish internally. And that relying on these visible patterns, which is what the family and the, and the genus and the species were, 
was only going to obfuscate and mask these deeper underlying patterns. And I think that was the real rupture. I mean, the notion that visibility, that common sense, even now fragmented, no longer held the promise of truth. That our common sense means weren't going to be sufficient anymore. And I think this cut between what was visible and what was invisible, and the fact that we now had to look not for the relations between things we saw and felt and heard, but for the relations between unknown things, unfamiliar things, and that the visible world, which was our real world, the world of everyday existence, was only going to be the tip of the iceberg. And the new intellectual means that Darwin brought enables us to do that. Now, it's almost a paradox that Darwin's book is called The Origins of Species, because, in fact, Darwin deconstructs species. I mean, one of the things the book shows is that species disappear. This basic of all common sense categories disappear as some kind of ontologically special level of reality. That is, there is no such thing as dog. Dogs are part of a grade of, of environmental expressions of certain genetic, genetic properties, which have no law-like essential structure. I mean, there is nothing in the genome, no ge set of genes we can call the dog genes. And so all creatures start to grade one into the other. And we see that species are simply snapshots of the world given to us by the fact of our mortality, of our concrete existence, and that in the long run, the long view, the view of God, they disappear. Similar changes, in Scott Atron's view, took place in other sciences. Physics, for example, also dug beneath appearances and discovered a world utterly different than the one our senses construct. The sensible properties of things, like color, washed out of physics in the same way that folk species washed out of biology. By our century, quantum physics had introduced concepts so counterintuitive and so disturbing to common sense that Einstein himself rebelled and declared that God could not have made such a world. Common sense is the ladder up which science must at first climb. Evolutionary theory, for example, could never have gone beyond folk species if it had not had them to begin with. But at a certain point, science pulls this ladder up behind it and begins to explore dimensions inaccessible to our unaided senses and scales of time and space far beyond the range of our experience. What Scott Atron concludes from this is that science does not integrate domains of knowledge, as Piaget claimed. Rather, it moves away from natural modes of thought into a specialized domain all its own. I think one of the problems was, has been, in cognitive studies is that we tend to look at science as if it were, almost as Piaget looked at it, as if it were the culmination of human thought, a continuous development of these common sense notions, when in fact I think that science is really marginal to humans. We don't use it most of the time. Nearly all cultures in the history of humanity haven't ever used it, and we don't need it to become perfectly competent cultural performers. That's not to say it's not important and that it extends the frontiers of human knowledge beyond anything we might have hoped for before we had it. 
It's just to say that using science as a model for describing other cognitive phenomena, like you know, how we normally think, I think is just the wrong way to go about it. Science's marginal role in everyday thinking is confirmed by an empirical study Scott Atron has done of university science students in the United States. In this study, he asked a group of rainforest-dwelling Guatemalan people called the ITSA and a group of University of Michigan science students to classify a variety of living things. He found substantial agreement in how they classified plants and animals. And he found that the Americans were no more likely to think scientifically outside the domain of science than were the ITSA. To give you the case of the bat, science clearly affects Michigan students' conception of bats. They know it's mammal, while the ITSA, the Maya, classify bats with birds. But knowing that, they don't do anything else with it along scientific lines, because then the Michigan students go on to say, well, what are the mammals closest to the bats and birds? And they classify them with shrews and mice. Well, shrews and mice are no closer to bats and than horses are, okay? So they use that information, that scientific bit of information, but then they, they don't do anything else that's scientific with it. So they don't want to violate science. You know, people don't want to violate it as long when it's commonsensical, when it can be integrated into common sense. And when it can't be, they basically ignore it. What this says to Scott Atron is that science isn't continuous with common sense, it doesn't replace common sense, and it doesn't even feed back into common sense. Knowing that bats are mammals doesn't make Michigan science students any more likely to classify them scientifically. Shreds of science may be assimilated to common sense, but they can never substitute for it. It is conceptually impossible that we could replace our common sense notions by scientific notions, because in the case of quantum mechanics, for instance, no one has the slightest idea what the physical instantiation of quantum equations are. You just do the mathematics. That's all you can do. If anyone tells you they really know what the physical counterparts of the mathematics they're doing, they're just um, blowing smoke. You can make statistical summaries of phenomena you believe are expressed by a series of quantum uh, equations, but there is no direct tie between the mathematics and the reality, like there is in the case of classical mechanics. I mean, now that we can mathematize, arithmetize, give figures to physical objects, which some enterprising Greek discovered how to do, and add them together, you know, two cows and another two cows, and come up with four cows and things like that, and we can all do it and integrate it into common sense, that's fine and dandy. And we can modify common sense to a certain degree namely the degree to which it's compatible with what we see in the world and our phenomenal intuitions. But when science goes beyond that, then we really just do process these things in different cognitive registers. Now, the interface that does exist, and some examples I've described, confuses people and leads them to believe that there is one global system and that one's either an imperfect expression or the other that is common sense being an imperfect expression of science, or the one is a continuation of the other. Science is just a continuation of common sense. And I think that that's a pernicious uh, assumption for a couple of reasons. One, because it replaces something really marginal in thought 
by something which is much more robust and richer for everyday thinking and makes that the model of the world of how we think and that feeds back into cognitive science with all sorts of I mean crazy assumptions about how humans think and the other I think it, it distorts what science really is Scott Atron has argued that natural sciences like biology or physics are based on universal modes of thought, but that they eventually transcend these modes and subsequently have very little influence on ordinary thinking. This is not the case with the social sciences. There we see what Ian Hacking calls a looping effect, as initially scientific descriptions become part of ordinary thought and begin to influence how we think about ourselves. Ian Hacking is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, where he's part of the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology, and he's the author of a number of books on the philosophy of science. In a book called The Taming of Chance, published in 1990, he describes how, in his words, society became statistical, and how the prevalence of statistical thinking led to the replacement of the old idea of human nature by a new conception, normality. The idea of normality has a strong, one of its strong connections is with statistical reasoning. And I suppose one could call statistical reasoning one mode of thought which has, which has taken over a lot of our public discourse. You can't do an environmental impact report or discuss sports or run an election without having an enormous amount of polling, sampling, and evaluation. That's one, one aspect of it. But there's another aspect in that I think normality has to do with normalizing, with thinking what both is the average and also what ought to be the case or what's healthy. The very word normal came in as a contrast with pathological in medicine. And there was the idea that the that the normal state was the healthy state, the desirable state. That's one of the automatic connotations of the word normal. And so although many people say that you ought to distinguish fact from value, you ought never to infer what ought to be the case from what is the case, the word normal serves as a wonderful bridge between that because what's normal is, what's, is just a description of the average in one of its meanings, but in a very closely associated meaning, it's a description of what's healthy, what's right, what you really want, so that, so that we constantly bridge in our thinking a gap between descriptions of how the world is and descriptions of what we would like the world to be, or what we would ourselves like to be. And in the form of norms, and a in related the form, word, mm -hmm. it also becomes an it, ethical concept. It's an ethical concept. It's about what we ought to be, and yet people also talk about the norms of production, which are just averages. So, and we don't think about how we slide from one to the other. It's a great little footpath or footbridge from, from, one to the, from, from descriptions to, to ethics, morality, and what we want. What pre-exists the idea of normal? What does the idea of normal displace? Well, historically, 
just looking at Western Europe and North America, during the 17th and 18th century, there was an enormous interest in the idea of human nature. And this was thought of not as, uh, not so much as a, as an anthropological description of how people are and how they behave, but rather as a description of the very nature of being a human being, so that people whom we now call philosophers or economists or moralists would all write books with either the word human nature in the title or sort of in the first paragraph. And here, human nature was a sort of ideal. I think that early in the 19th century, after the Napoleonic Wars, partly because of a great burgeoning of, of public statistical inquiries, people became interested in normal people rather than in human nature. There was a terrific fascination with deviance, that is, with criminals, with suicides, with the mad, with prostitutes, with uh, vagrants, a whole, whole class of people who were, were first noticed or described in that way at the beginning of the industrial era. And so that one of the concomitants of early industrialization or changes in the means of production was a switch from thinking about a ideal and perfectly rational human nature to a consideration of how people behave and what's normal for people to do. And somehow the statistical idea of normal as average and the medical idea as normal as opposed to pathological became very closely connected. Normal can be applied to you know, the age at which a ch child first ties its laces, the uh, standard of literacy which is expected of people in, a, in an information theoretic world can be applied to the quality of grain. It can be applied to any, it normal sort of applies to ever, it can be applied to almost any kind of classificatory concept at all. You suggested this was somehow associated with the Industrial Revolution. Well, it, what are the, the preconditions for such a concept appearing? I don't think one can answer that in a very satisfactory way. I can tell a story about how that change occurred. I do believe that, with, with, that there were two quite unrelated phenomena which had a lot to do with it. Whether they were necessary preconditions, we couldn't have had normality without them, uh, I, I would never argue that. But I do think that the change in medical thinking from holistic to organs and the corresponding development of pathology and histology and the like is important. Because instead of thinking about a sick person as the whole human being, there was a focus on particular organs, as, as Michel Foucault says open in one of his chapter headings, open up a few corpses, that now disease was identified with organs rather than the, the, the whole being, the, the homeopathic type of approach, among other things, or the humors. Uh, disease was identified with particular organs. And they could be thought of as either healthy or diseased or unhealthy. And the terminology which was used was that of pathological and normal. And there was a very major debate in, among physicians as to whether the, the pathological would define 
disease and health was simply absence of pathology, or whether normality would design health and pathology was different. So there's a great deal of discussion about the idea of normality there, and that's where the word normal in its presence meanings comes in. A quite, at first, unrelated series of events is the development of public statistics. I think this is connected with the changes in administration necessitated by those wars. First of all, governments became much more centralized. There were, there were needs to mass produce weapons, bullets, artillery, needs to standardize methods of transportation. You, you had to, I mean, so they, they now seem very primitive. They were drawing all their food with mules and carts. But if you had standardized carts, you could, and they all got stuck in the mud and so on, you could repair them much more quickly. An enormous interest in, in increase in standards, and at the same time, armies of a, of a size and organization, which is very important, which had not been known before. I mean, we had wild armies, that, you know, hordes and hordes, but with very little uh, uh, head office organization. During the Napoleonic Wars, you had uh, the kinds of chains of command established which are characteristic of modern armies. You wanted to have measures of whether your soldiers could be accepted or not, whether recruits could be accepted. We didn't have IQ tests then, but there were standard tests of ability and of height and so forth. People got statistical distributions of heights and uh, sizes of soldiers. The very first uh, normal distribution of people which was ever studied. But by that, that's that by normal distribution here. I mean the bell-shaped curve, which which you know educators have to all their students have to come out on that on that bell-shaped curve. Well, the first study of the bell-shaped curve in connection with humans was of the chest diameters of Scottish Highland soldiers, and the uh, the Belgian statistician who used this as a famous example said, "We know a certain bell-shaped distribution." from the theory of errors, from which was developed for studying astronomy, uh, studying the position of stars and planets, but we find exactly the same distribution when we look at Scottish Highland soldiers' chests. The distribution is just as if there were a single average Highlander and a bad tailor making many measurements. This was the kind of move from astronomy into human science. And once, once that had been set in place, the idea of normalcy seemed to have a kind of precision, a kind of rigor. Uh, you, you could uh, even, you could, there was a mathematics of it, so it was see, it suddenly seemed respectable, scientific. All, all these things have to do with the making of normalcy in the modern world, I believe. The establishment of the idea of normal was a consequence of what Ian Hacking calls the taming of chance. It involved the discovery of a whole series of statistical regularities in society, regularities we now take for granted. We expect to be told the relative frequency of every kind of occurrence, to have our opinions reflected by polls in which we haven't participated, to take part in elections whose results have been successfully foretold before we've even voted. We know that our behavior is predictable, not because we ourselves are known, but because someone has determined the probability that we will do X or Y or Z. But for this to become possible, it was first necessary that society be enumerated. Collection of statistics began sporadically during the 18th century and accelerated into what Ian Hacking calls an avalanche of printed numbers during the 19th century.
The stimulus, he says, was the unsettled social conditions produced by the Industrial Revolution. Statistics and sociology came into being as types of knowledge which were intended to control the, to use a phrase of the time, the dangerous classes. I mean, this is what's connected with those great upheavals that we call the Industrial Revolution. Very large numbers of people who had been peasants in the land moving into the cities, working awfully often in horrible conditions, necessary to the wealth of the new capitalist classes, but also a great threat to them. And the, the studies of deviance, of criminals, prostitutes, mad, suicides, vagrants, and the like, were in part intended to engender the knowledge which would enable the, the powers that be to exercise control. I mean, our phrase information and control, a common phrase nowadays, is one which comes into being around 1830 or so. We find we obtain the information about these people and we are able to control them quite explicitly. One of the forms of deviant behavior that was extensively studied during the 19th century was suicide. Statistics were kept on the methods used, the geographical distribution, the annual frequency, even the seasonal variation. It seemed from the collection of data that the number of suicides in each administrative uh, district, ward as it were, the arrondissement of Paris, were constant from year to year, also prompting a worry. I mean, does that mean that 17 people in this little ward have to kill themselves every year? It's absolutely regular. It's just like a law of nature. You find that the curve for suicides by time of year is absolutely stable from year to year so that you can start predicting that next August there are going to be more people than kill themselves now in December. How persistent are the stabilities? Uh, they are less persistent than those early thinkers believed. On the other hand, it has been true for very long periods of time that national suicide rates relative to each other proportionally, have been very different. Thus, Western Germans and Prussians, North Germans, and French and Americans kill themselves at about the same rate. That is true today, is true in 1950, is true in 1900, it was true in 1850, it was true in 1815. As if there is some feature of the society and its relation to suicide. We know, we know these things. Um, Canada used to be substantially lower than the United States. This is no longer true. You get genuine changes in, in suicide rates, which Durkheim would have thought is, shows something very significant about Canada right now, that there is this change in the suicide rate. And I can even make predictions. For instance, uh, Saxony, which is part of East Germany, had one of the highest suicide rates in Europe, higher than in Sweden, for example. Now, during the period of the, of the GDR, of the East German regime, uh, suicide rates were basically incredibly hard to get hold of. I mean, they, they were just the kind of statistic the regime was not letting out. But I, I predict that the suicide rate in Saxony, when it's known, when the documents are all revealed, will turn out to have been very much higher than 
in West Germany, and this is nothing to do with communism versus, versus capitalism or anything, the same ratio, it'll be something like the same ratio as was there in, in, in the German Empire in 1900. The remarkable stability of suicide rates was just one instance of society appearing to obey the laws of statistics. The uncovering of this secret statistical skeleton led eventually to a completely new portrait of what a society is, its chief feature was the emphasis on probabilities. 18th century thought had been dominated by the doctrine of necessity. The French astronomer and mathematician, the Marquis de Laplace, had said, if one could comprehend all the forces by which nature is animated, nothing would be uncertain. Everything could be shown to be causally determined. Statistical probabilities were something entirely different. One knows only that something is disposed to happen, that someone will commit suicide. The event is predictable without being determined. Individual occurrences are random and chaotic, but over a number of cases, chance will shape itself into law. A society based on probabilistic laws depends more on computation than on the exercise of judgment. Knowing what to do means knowing what the state of public opinion is, or what the likelihood of an accident is, or what will happen if we invest heavily in widget production. The key to control is enumeration. Enumeration requires categorization. And categorization, Ian Hacking thinks, draws people into the ruts the new categories create. There's a very general feature of the scientific or scientific aiming classifications we make of people, that classifying people has an effect on people, effects of different sorts. I mean, sometimes people rise up and rebel against the classifications. I mean, the most famous example of that is the way in which the late 19th century classification of homosexuality as a medical condition has been taken by, in the end, the gay community onto itself so that it is no longer regarded as a medical condition, but is regarded as something totally different in nature, much disputed about what it is. But there one has a classification which, partly because of the very making of the classification, has led to a a much more self-conscious bonding and finally the phenomenon of coming out of gay rights and all the rest of it. There, There is a classification getting out of the hands of the people who officially made it up. The word, the very, the word homosexuality in the medical discourse comes in quite clearly in the last quarter of the 19th century and there it's owned by the doctors and the legal experts. Now it's not owned by them anymore. Lots of other classifications aren't like that, remained owned by the experts, uh, or interact with the people who are classified in very different ways, sometimes by uh, becoming topics of popular concern. Usually, notice these classifications are, are invented in order to describe, guess what, deviants, and to help them. I mean, what we're supposed to do, what these classifications are to understand, to help, to make them normal. Uh, one, one thing which I have thought about, written about for a while is child abuse, which is a term 
which came into being, I don't say that child abuse came into being, it's a term that came into being uh, in the early 1960s, and then at that time had no, no sexual connotations at all. I expect many of our listeners, will, when they hear the word child abuse, will think of child sexual abuse. That's, that connection came in only around 1975. And I think that there is a whole, I think there's a change in child abusers themselves in the kinds of, I think there's even a change in the way in which people abuse children, partly because of the developments of this classification. And I think that there is a kind of feedback from the way in which people behave to the supposed experts, uh, who are they, psychologists, sociologists, social workers, psychiatrists who deal with trying to help people who are child abusers. And also, it affects the consciousness of children who see, who perceive events in their lives differently than they did before. So we don't, it's not a question of us inventing classifications which then describe phenomena more clearly to us, but rather there's a much more elaborate interaction between the act of classification and the behavior of the people who are classified. So, but now nor, where normality comes into that, normality, as I said, can apply over an enormously wide range of types of people and behavior, if we're just sticking to human beings. And there, undoubtedly, the very fact that nor one of the connotations of normalcy is health, healthiness, produces a strong pressure from above to normalize people, to squeeze them into the area of the normal, thus changing the people themselves. And it also acts on people who either want to be uh, normal and act accordingly, change their behavior or change their condition. There are also other things that we don't well understand. I was told just the other day of work by Dr. Uh, Brian Haynes at McMaster University who is very interested in, in hypertension, high blood pressure. Now, high blood pressure is one of the most, uh, or, or blood pressure, I should say, is one of the most beautiful bell-shaped curves in, in human nature. <laughs> that is to say, if you take a large population, you'll find that blood pressure has a beautiful bell-shaped curve. Hypertension is not defined in terms of something organic. It's determined as a slice of the top end of that curve. They, you just take a certain proportion of the top end, and those are the people with high blood pressure. And there's some, some serious debate in the, not, not among individual physicians, but among those who are concerned with the public health of populations as to whether there even is, I mean, how arbitrary that, that level is. And this, this, this is the point at which people are triggered into taking drugs and wholesome discussion. Well, what Haynes has, has shown is a labeling effect, telling people they have high blood pressure gives them high blood pressure. If your physician says to you, I mean, he has these, these studies. I mean, I exaggerate the effect. I mean, of course, it's a little more complicated than this. But roughly speaking, one of the effects of telling people that they have, telling a person they have high blood pressure is to increase, increase their blood pressure, which is not necessarily a bad thing because uh, it may be a person who is, uh, has a certain, I mean, a lot of people aren't very well connected. There's nobody looking after them very much. Once you have high blood pressure, you're suddenly a patient. You're tracked by a doctor. Somebody's interested in you. And it may be very good for your health that you are, that, that you've developed high blood pressure, oddly enough, because you were called, 
you know, high blood pressure. So, there's, so even at the level of physiology, you find this labeling effect. I think it's far more, and, and that's something which uh, I suspect nobody understands very well, the relationship between people's beliefs and their bodies. But I think that that's a kind of extreme case of the way in which labeling influences people and labeling in that case based upon statistical distribution. I mean, the, the phenomenon is a statistical phenomenon. Hypertension is a particular cutoff point on the, cur on the blood pressure curve of a population. In Ian Hacking's view, there is no such thing as an innocent or neutral classification. His most recent book examines the interplay between ideas about multiple personality and the experienced condition of multiple personality. It's called Rewriting the Soul, Multiple Personality and the Science of Memory. It was published after this interview was recorded and isn't discussed here, but the general idea that classifications inevitably interact with the people classified is one Ian Hacking has been pondering for a long time. What we think real, he says, we make real. My overall interest is in what I call making up people, the ways in which our thinking about people, our new knowledges about people, influence other people and ourselves. I'm interested in the way in which we shouldn't think of the human sciences social sciences as being strictly analogous to the natural sciences because of the intimate interaction between what is known and who is knowing. I'm interested in this partly because of the uh, political connotations. I think that a lot of these knowledges are very strong, have always been and are strongly connected with the ways in which power and control and order work in society, not necessarily for evil. I mean, we, we desperately want various kinds of order and control, we, and they're terrified when it breaks down. But I think that we're here concerned with some of the social mechanisms of ordering and understanding our society, and that we very often wrongly model that knowledge on knowledge in the uh, natural sciences. So there is a, could I call it, a citizenly hope in some of what you do? Yes, although there is what a philosopher colleague Richard Rorty calls a kind of irony in this type of understanding in that it's not as if there were some real truths about human nature, real truths about more ordinary things, about what is normal development for a child or what is objectively wrong in the way of abuse of a child. Not as if there was some kind of reality outside of our talk, outside of our classifications, outside of our knowledge, so that if we only did the stripping away and, ex and the historical explaining of how these concepts got into place, then we would be really free and able to get down to the truth. There isn't any such truth there. We are, we are in the world of our ideas. And although we constantly try to change and ameliorate and attain a level of self-understanding which, which frees us from certain types of phoniness and self-deception about objective knowledge, it's not as if there is some objective knowledge we could really get to. 
we, there are only our ideas and our concepts for describing ourselves. And that is, that is something which some people find very discouraging because there is this great hope for utopian solutions, which I believe is fundamentally and in principle a wrong way to conceive of the human condition. And, that's, and that sometimes leads people to a kind of despair and say there's no point in doing anything, which I think is radically wrong. There are innumerable individual things we can do but shouldn't engage in that type of social and political improving, helping activity because we think that we're going to the true light On Ideas Tonight, you've heard the final program of a four-part series by David Cayley on modes of thought. Our thanks to David Olson and his colleagues at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education who organized the symposium on which the series was based. Production assistants Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. Technical direction by Lon Tulk. Producer Alison Moss. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.